Good morning. My name is Clint Arnold, and I just discovered that VBS is in my backyard. (laughs) Well, I'm stepping in for Dennis uh, today. He's on the road back from Colorado. So pray for the Lord's grace in their travels and uh, back into Southern California. Um, But it's a delight to be able to share the word with you this morning. So I'd invite you to take your Bibles and open them up to Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. And that'll be our text for this morning. Um, And as we continue this series in Luke, I wanted to begin this morning by talking about the kingdom especially because I have now acquired a new key to the kingdom. And I can go anytime I like, unless it's a blackout day. (laughs) But actually, last Sunday, I went to Disneyland. Barbara and I went to Disneyland with my middle son, Dustin, and his wife, Haley. It was... uh, one of the last times that we could uh, do that is probably the last time we could do that with them before they move off to New York City this summer where they'll be spending a year. But we had a marvelous time. I, it's, Disney is just doing some amazing things right now. I don't know if you guys have seen the 60th anniversary parade and the 60th anniversary fireworks. It's like a whole step up from anything Disney has done before. It's really remarkable. But I have to admit, I was a bit disappointed that Fantasmic was shut down because they're making the Star Wars land uh, over there. That's going to be pretty awesome once it's done, but it's going to take a long time for that to be done. But Fantasmic was shut down. Um, And I don't know, it just kind of is a quick aside here. I don't know if you guys had ever heard that a number of years ago, Captain Hook led Mickey Mouse to Christ. Another way of putting that is Dan DuPont, one of our church members at the Russell campus, led Erica to Christ, who he, he was Captain Hook and she portrayed Mickey Mouse. And it's a great story. Our pastor, uh, Robert Bishop, his wife, Devette, has made a nice little Facebook post giving their story. But it's a, it's a marvelous thing. And Dan's still doing Captain Hook. But I have to admit, I, was, I love Fantasmic, and I enjoy uh, Fantasmic, but it was uh, out of commission for this thing. Uh, but when you think about Fantasmic, you know, it's an amazing, uh, everything comes together with Disney in that. The music, uh, just amazing pyrotechnics and fireworks, all the Disney characters in some way are involved. And then at the end of it all, um, Mickey is standing there and he is able to slay all of the villains and all of the bad guys. And ultimately there's this big fire-breathing dragon that comes out and Mickey is able to slay this. And at the end of it he says, some imagination, huh? (laughs) I'm not very good at doing that, but uh, it's just cool. It's really cool. And the way that it ends, though, it, uh, it made me think of this passage because there are a number of people that would look at the passage that we're going to take a careful look at this morning 
and say that the content of what you're going to read about this morning is essentially on par with Fantasia, the Sorcerer's Apprentice, and Fantasmic. That it's quite an imagination that went behind this. In fact, there's one scholar that I'm familiar with that says when you read a passage like what we're going to read today, that to believe this as reality is tantamount to moving back to a world of elves, dragons, and a flat world. It's imagination. And that's what we want to take a look at this morning. We want to take a look at this passage, but we also want to grapple with some of the issues that lie behind it, especially reading this passage in a culture like ours, 2,000 years removed, with the advent of modern science and psychology and technology and everything else. And how do we make sense, honestly, of a passage like this in a modern context? So I invite you to uh, turn to the passage with me, and let's take a look at it. We'll read it together, uh, reflect on it, and look at some of the details and their relevance for our lives. Luke chapter 4, verse 31. And it says, And he, in referring to Jesus there, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Hey, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her. And immediately she arose and began to serve them. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on them, every one of them, and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must first preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Pause with me for just a moment. Father, we thank you for your word. We want to take it seriously. We want to see its relevance for our lives. But Lord, if we're honest with ourselves, when we encounter passages like this, it creates a lot of confusion. 
We need your illumination. We need your help to better understand this, especially in terms of its relevance for us. Lord, would you be present with us this morning? Would you speak to our minds and our hearts, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I have titled the message this morning, Demonstrating the Kingdom. If there's one main idea that I think flows out of this text, it's just that. Jesus came to proclaim the kingdom of God, but he also came to demonstrate the kingdom and its power through healing. The pattern of proclamation and demonstration was the way that the gospel was spread all through the Mediterranean world and from there all over the world uh, that we know it today. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who succeeded Jesus in carrying on the mission of the church, when he was evangelizing at Thessaloniki in modern-day Macedonia, he said in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And if we take a look across the two-thirds world today and look at what is happening in China, look at what's happening in the Middle East, look at what's happening in Latin America, in Africa, this same pattern continues. There is the gospel proclaimed in words which is essential for us to know the salvation, but it's demonstrated in power. Our God is alive, he's powerful, he's active, and he's demonstrating that in a lot of different ways. This passage that we're looking at this morning, essentially, if you boil it down, there's one major story and then three small episodes. And then we'll want to take a look at each of those in turn. But the one major story of Jesus dealing with the demoniac in the synagogue at Capernaum, and then the smaller stories of Jesus rebuking the fever of Simon's mother-in-law, also in Capernaum, and then an evening in which there's like a healing service taking place, and then ultimately Jesus preparing to go and proclaim the words of the gospel, and then off to Judea. But I want to do spend a little time on something a bit prior before we get into the passage and the details of the passage itself and ask us, now that we've read the passage, how do we respond to a story like this today? I mean, we look around us, we're in a school, we're in an academic context, and I'm the dean of a graduate school in a Christian university, and I have a responsibility to ensure that our students are exposed to the finest of scholarship. And yet the world has a lot to say. The academic world has a lot to say about matters like this. And so how am I supposed to, and how are you supposed to, retain your mental credibility and accept what is happening in a story like this? And I want to grapple with that for just a little bit with you this morning. There's been, in an academic context, like a university setting, or in uh, a place where of higher learning, there have been two major ways of dealing with a story like this as we encounter it uh, in the Bible. 
One is to call it mythology and basically say that the ancients had no knowledge of what we have today in terms of modern psychological diagnoses. They had no scientific understandings, or at least very primitive scientific understandings of things. And so they easily appealed to spiritual powers as a way of explaining things that we would normally explain in other ways. And so our task as readers of a text like this in an academic context would be to recognize what is mythological in here and kind of strip the Bible of its myth. Now, there are people, plenty of people who've done that for us. We had a president, Thomas Jefferson, uh, that did something like that at one time and, and cut and pasted the Bible in a particular way. But there's a second, more popular way of handling passages like this that I've seen in academic contexts, and that's to not just strip the Bible of its mythological elements, but to recognize that these are integral to the message of the text, but then to reinterpret the language of the text. And so we're seeing that happen in a lot of different contexts and in, in different classes and among scholars in different ways where they read an account like this and they see words like legion to describe the number of demons in a demoniac and they say, wow, that's code language for the Roman political powers so that when we see references to spirits, we should think, oh, this is a way of thinking about political power and political authority in kind of uh, code language. And there's a variety of other ways to do that. But bottom line to all of this is an inability to accept this as reality. And yet we come into church, we read these stories, and we think they're in our Bible, we accept them, and we want to uh, integrate them into our lives in some fashion but that's in an amazing conflict with what's happening in a modern academic context. And that's where the rub comes in. A few years ago, I wrote an article for an apologetic study Bible on the question, can we still believe in demons? And the answer I reached on that was, yes, we can. There are very good reasons for believing in the reality of this realm. And we as believers would tend to believe this because in the Bible from Genesis and the Garden of Eden till the very end and uh, the imprisonment of Satan at the end, uh, that theme is so clear in the Bible. There is the reality of the demonic from beginning to end and through the ministry of Jesus and everywhere in between. It is clearly part of the biblical worldview. And I think it makes great sense when we look at the larger perspective of life. The last 20 years or so, I've been involved with two other professors at our institution teaching a class called Issues in Spiritual Warfare. The other professors, one is a professor of psychology and the other is a professor of anthropology and missions. And we've grappled with these questions and tried to see what is the significance of all of this for today. And it's been a marvelous, uh, a marvelous time together 
because we've hit the ground running with the fact that we believe the Bible is the Word of God, we believe it corresponds to reality, and we begin with that assumption and then try to talk about, well, where should this lead us? We've had psychology students, mission students, theological students, and all kinds in this mix. A couple of things that we've concluded in our study and in our times together. One is that we are complex people and that God has put us together in an amazing way. The psalmist says we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And we have to take seriously the fact that we are biological creatures. There's medical issues and conditions that we have to take very seriously. There's neurological factors that we have to take very seriously. There's also psychological. God has made us in a very complex way with our minds. We have to take the psychological elements very seriously. And on both of these scores, the medical and the psychological, our culture has done very well. But we are also spiritual beings. And our culture, with its naturalistic worldview, has neglected this aspect to its own detriment. And I think we in the church have an obligation and an opportunity to reintegrate the spiritual aspect into an understanding of who we are as believers and see that all three of these areas, the medical, psychological, and spiritual, are tended to in people's lives. And I say that because there's a tendency to misbalance here. People can see and get excited about the spiritual dimension and then see demons behind every bush. And that might not be appropriate. Somebody may just need to take a pill, right? (laughs) So a lot more that I could say on that, but a couple of other uh, insights that we've come to over the years is that there's a difference between prayer and authority. And one of the themes that comes out of this passage today is the theme of authority. Prayer is when we talk to God and say, God, would you help in such a way? Authority is when we take what God has given us and command something in a certain respect. And keep that distinction in mind as we get into this passage in more detail. Which, it's not a bad idea. Let's go into the Bible itself. (laughs) So take a look with me at uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 31 and following. It begins with Jesus narrating, the narration here, and he went down, Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. Let me just make a comment there. He went down. Just prior to this, he was in Nazareth. Now, all of this is in the northern part of Israel. So we have Jerusalem way down here in the south with the Dead Sea just to the east of Jerusalem. And a little over 100 miles as a crow flies, you'll see the Sea of Galilee at the top of the land of Israel. And on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee is Capernaum, right on the coast of this, of this uh, lake. And just to the west of Capernaum is a hilly area with a plateau above the lake And Nazareth is embedded right there. So coming down from Nazareth to Capernaum wasn't that far, but it was coming down into Capernaum. Capernaum was not a very big city. Uh, It was maybe 1,500 people back then. Uh, It was a village. 
There were no big buildings like you'd see in modern Greeks or in uh, ancient Greek cities with theaters and uh, baths and all kinds of public buildings like that. It was this fishing village right on that north shore. And so Jesus went into the synagogue there, uh, was teaching on the Sabbath, and he spoke with authority. And then he has this encounter with this person. uh, It says, uh, in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice. Now, interesting, in a sacred space like a synagogue, that this kind of thing would happen. But incidentally, uh, if you go to Capernaum today, you can see the remains of that synagogue. It's a real place. You can see the foundation of the first century synagogue. There's a third century structure that was built on top of it, but it is a real place. It is a historical place. But this man manifests in some way this spiritual presence in his life. And Luke tells us that he was a spirit of an unclean demon or an unclean spirit. He has an unclean demon, which maybe makes us wonder, well, does that mean that there's like clean demons running around? And uh, what's the difference between a clean one and an unclean one? I've never seen a dirty one before. Um, And we have to kind of change our categories here a little bit. It's not it needed a bath. Uh, It was a demon that was characterized as unclean because of moral characteristics. The demonic is associated with Satan, and it influences people to live impure, unholy, ungodly lives. And that's the uncleanness that comes about them. They're bent on evil. They're bent to steal, kill, and destroy. They're bent on opposing everything God is all about. Interestingly, what we'll see as we put this passage in the larger context is that it contrasts very sharply with who Jesus is. And what do the demons call Jesus in this passage? The Holy One of God. He's very unlike them because Jesus is pure. And God is revealed in the Old Testament as in Leviticus I am a holy God. Be holy because I am holy. I am morally pure. I am full of integrity. I don't have darkness in me. I am full of virtue. And the demons were just opposite of that. They were bent on destruction. They were bent on impure ways. And yet Jesus is contrasted to that in this way. Um... One other interesting factor that comes up in this is that the demon shows an accurate knowledge of Jesus. We often think of demons as, in the way the scripture reveals them, as deceivers and liars. But they're capable of telling the truth. And in this passage, and in the one following, they are accurate. They are truthful. They're reliable in their witness. And they are the ones who are maybe reluctantly, maybe in a panicky way, giving an amazing witness to who Jesus really is. In this instance, the Holy One of God. Later, it will be the Son of God and the Christ. And so they can tell the truth 
on occasions, but they're reluctant witnesses today. And so Jesus is revealed then as the Holy One of God, and Jesus rebukes the Spirit in verse 30... Well, I'm going to have to put on my glasses here. In one of the 30s, um, (laughs) he rebukes him and says, Come out of him. And the demon comes out of the man. And they're all amazed, and Jesus moves forward. Now, I've got to ask this question. We often look at this and we think, this passage is amazing because it glorifies Jesus. And it does, but it does something more than that as well. We can ask ourselves, by what power, by what authority did Jesus cast out these spirits? And maybe our knee-jerk reaction to that might be, well, he did so because he's God in the flesh. I mean, that's God they're messing with. But yet, I think there's something a little different uh, that becomes very relevant for us. I will put forward the idea this morning that Jesus was casting out spirits not on the basis of his deity, but on the basis of the fact that he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And what's significant about that is because is that Jesus becomes our example. We're not deity, but we do have the Spirit of God in our lives. We have the same Spirit that indwelt Jesus. Now, it doesn't mention explicitly the Holy Spirit in the passage here, but everything leading up to it in a narrative way, points to the fact that this is what, this is the power by which Jesus performed this. Note in chapter 3, if I could have you turn back for just a moment. Chapter 3 speaks of Jesus' baptism with the Spirit. Verse 21, all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized... And was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now in a sense, Jesus didn't need the Spirit because he's God in the flesh. But Jesus becomes our example because he's demonstrating what is possible for a life lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice chapter 4, verse 1. This is right before he goes into the desert. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And it was there that he was tempted by the devil. It's no accident that Luke is telling us that he was full of the Holy Spirit prior to being tempted. We face temptation... How are we supposed to resist? There's a key mentioned right here. Verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Once again, a stress on his, the role of the Holy Spirit in his life. And then verse 18, which is a quotation from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, 
and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what is going on here is Jesus setting the stage for the entirety of his three-year ministry, and he's saying, this is how I will be conducting my ministry. This is the call upon my life that Isaiah, the prophet, indicated 800 years ago. But it was by the Spirit of God that I'll be engaging in this ministry of proclaiming the good news and setting the captives free. And once again, I would draw our attention back to what is our call. If we think of the Great Commission, it's to do the same thing. It's to continue the ministry of Jesus in proclaiming the gospel. And I would say also, to a degree, demonstrating the power of the gospel by the same spirit in this fashion. So the bottom line for this is by what power is Jesus casting out spirits? Is it by his divinity or is it by the Spirit of God? And Luke later in chapter 11 will make this very clear. Chapter 11, verse 20. And he says this, For if I cast out demons by the finger of God or by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so basically what he's associating it with, these miracles are a manifestation of the presence of God's kingdom because the king has arrived, he's doing his ministry in the power of the spirit, and he's moving forward. He's casting out spirits by the spirit of God, and it's a demonstration of that kingdom power. So the second episode then happens in verses 38 and 39. Jesus arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now this Simon was also called Peter and become, became one of the twelve. But we've got to keep it in context right here because God hasn't called Peter yet. So this is before he knew Peter as one of the twelve. And he is... Uh, intervening in a spiritual way for Peter's mother-in-law at Capernaum. And he rebukes the fever. Now that's really odd, because if I have a high fever, I take two ibuprofen. (laughs) But Jesus treats this fever like it's a demon or something. He rebukes it, and it leaves. And I think behind this, what we might see is that there may be occasions when illness is associated with the demonic. That definitely is a biblical theme. Illness can be associated with the demonic. The language that he's using here is language that would be used with a demonic spirit to rebuke it, cause it to leave, and so on. And that might be the suggestion in this way. And then thirdly, this next episode, when the sun was setting, all those who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons came out of many, crying, You're the Son of God. But he rebuked them and not allowed them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. So it was, in a sense, a Capernaum healing evening, Capernaum healing service one evening, And everybody is bringing, I mean, word will spread fast on something like this. And you've got a sick relative, a sick child, 
you bring them to Jesus and let him heal them. And he was healing everyone in sight. And I guess one of the questions that would come to us as we reflect on this, what does this mean for us? We can glorify Jesus and think, man, that's amazing how he is doing this. But would he do that today? Would he do that sort of thing in our midst today? Uh, if we were to exercise authority in Jesus' name and this sort of uh, an approach to this. And here's what I would suggest in reflecting on this a little bit. Healing is not a command performance. There are settings, there are contexts, and there is times when we need to rely on the sovereignty of God we always need to rely on the sovereignty of God and his divine will in these things. Now, just earlier in the passage that Len preached last week, Jesus was in Nazareth, and they were saying, hey, why don't you do some of this kind of crazy stuff that you've been doing everywhere else and do it here in your hometown? And Jesus didn't. He didn't do any of it in Nazareth. And they're bummed by that, and they can't quite figure it out. In fact, he gives two examples. He says, think back at the time of uh, Elijah. And there were all kinds of things going on in Elijah's day, but there was a lot of people suffering from a famine, but it was only to one person that God sent Elijah, and that was the widow of Zarephath. And think back about the time of Elisha, and there were many lepers at the time of Elisha, but it was only one through whom God worked Uh, to bring healing, and that was Naaman the Syrian. And basically, we need to keep these two passages in connection with one another. It's God's sovereign will as to who is healed in these sorts of things. He is capable of healing, he will heal, and he can heal, but it's his sovereign call according to his master plan and purpose of when he intervenes with the healing. Now, what criteria does God use for deciding who is healed? And I wish I could answer that completely. But there's one pattern that we notice in Scripture that's very common, and that is that healing often happens in conjunction with proclamation. Healing often happens in conjunction with proclamation. When we look at global Christianity today, and we see some of the things that are happening, where is healing happening so often right now? There's incredible stories coming out of Asia, Africa, Latin America, of God doing some amazing things in India and so on with healing as a way to authenticate and validate the power of the gospel. That's where this is at right now. This is what we'll see in the book of Acts or what we've seen in the book of Acts. Healing is often associated with the gospel moving out in a time of proclamation to authenticate the words of the gospel. That's one context where we might expect God to show up in some amazing ways. He can also heal in our day. But I think we have to be very aware that it's his sovereign call. As Len made a comment last week, he's, and Joe did in our worship this morning, um, all of us are going to die anyway, and it's going to be something from which we could be healed. 
but yet it's appointed to every person to die. God can intervene, but he will not always intervene. And it has to be in line with his sovereign purpose in when he chooses to heal. So finally, uh, this last section, when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him. The desolate place, we might insert quiet place, because I think this follows Jesus' pattern of wanting to get away from the crowds and spend time in intimate communion with his father. But he said to them, they didn't want him to leave, and he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. The proclamation of the gospel with words is essential to what Jesus would do. It's essential to what the apostles would do, as we see that unfold in the book of Acts, and it's essential for us that the gospel is a message we proclaim, a message that brings ultimate healing, ultimate uh, restoration and wellness with God. And that's uh, the heart of what Jesus was doing. He's now going to go south to Judea. That's the province in which Jerusalem lay, again, about 100 miles south. And he's going to go from village to village there and proclaim the gospel. But let me bring this home and try to bring out a few insights on the relevance for us today. Number one, the kingdom of God came in the person of Jesus. So he was the anticipated and the expected Messiah, and his miraculous deeds demonstrated not only his identity, but demonstrated, maybe more importantly, the fact that the kingdom of God had come now in power. His identity is revealed by a group of reluctant witnesses, the demonic, who proclaim him to be the Holy One of God, the Son of God, and then ultimately the Christ, the Messiah. And secondly, we continue the kingdom ministry of Jesus by following his example. We do so by proclaiming the kingdom of God, and we do so by demonstrating the kingdom of God. Proclamation and demonstration. How can we do that more effectively? And I just want to conclude with a, just a couple of quick thoughts here on how we might think about this in a different way. All of us, or nearly all of us, hopefully all of us in the future, are part of a life group. And all of our life groups are charged with trying to discern a mission, a missional focus, where we can give of ourselves to the community in some way. Perhaps we could think about offering to pray for people and with people that we encounter. People who are hurting, people who need the touch of the Lord Jesus, people who don't know the Lord Jesus in a personal way. It's been interesting. I, when you ask someone if you can pray for them after they've shared a hurt, it means so much to them, and very few people will turn you down. And it's in these kinds of encounters that God may show up through his spirit 
in a powerful way to do something extraordinary. But we have to be willing to step out in offering and demonstrating the power of God to touch a person's life. Each of us has the Holy Spirit of God living within us. Each of us is called by God to live out the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in addition to proclaiming the gospel and sharing it, the offer of bringing people into contact with a powerful God who can bring healing even might be a way forward, something else for us to think about in terms of engaging in our individual ministries. might not just be our life group. It might be your neighbor. I've got a neighbor who would never come to church, but she's asked me to pray for her. She's asked me to pray for things in her life. Uh, maybe you do too. And maybe that's an offer that could be extended from time to time. Who knows what God might do? Father, thank you for this time that we could share together this morning. Uh, this is a passage, Lord, that some in our culture would scoff at. Some in our culture would say that this is uh, mythological, that it just really has no relevance for today other than being a cool story. But Lord, we believe you are the Holy One of God. We believe you're the Son of God and that you've sent your Spirit to live within us. So I pray you would empower us, all of us as a group, as a church, to live this out in the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.